Some of you will be uh, familiar with the uh, translations and the collections of poetry by a very senior Dharma student from the Bay Area, Stephen uh, Mitchell. And those of us who have a particular uh, love and affection of uh, his translation, translations, particularly of uh, Reina Maria Rilke, will uh, know the considerable amount of time that, and care and sensitivity that Stephen put into the uh, translations of Rilke's poetry, and I must say, really quite beautiful poetry. And for those who are interested in the deeper intimations of life, and particularly that unusual um, flair of spirituality and sensuality, which is a, a feature of Rilke, it does seem to me that uh, Stephen, in his translations, which he worked on for several years, really has contributed enormously to our appreciation and our understanding of uh, Rilke's poetry and is uh, immensely uh, insightful poet. And he has put together, Stephen, uh, a collection which is called The Enlightened Heart, which is an anthology of sacred poetry which uh, includes Rilke and on previous occasions I have given a commentary on one or two of uh, Rilke's uh, poems. But in this uh, period with you this evening, if I may, I would like to give a commentary on one of the other pieces which Stephen has selected for this anthology, and it's a very classic and well-known piece by the bard himself, William Shakespeare, and this from The, the Tempest, and it's Prospero uh, speaking, and just incidentally, uh, with regard this area. I don't know how it is for those of you who were educated here in the uh, United States, but certainly I can speak for myself uh, being educated in England, which has a small uh, reputation for the range and variety of writers and poets which it has produced over the centuries and in other areas of the arts, the creative arts, it has not been such a prominent voice. I'm thinking of art itself, uh, music and other forms, but in the realms of uh, language, there has some, it has uh, regarded as having excelled in that particular area of the creative arts. And it's quite remarkable how education of children and young people can actively do its level best to destroy that appreciation. And certainly for myself, going through the wretched uh, English uh, educational system throughout my teens when the poets were rammed down our throat, including Shakespeare, when we had to read and memorize things which we hated, that I actually had the thought through my uh, teens that that poets were basically uh, mentally depressed people, 
who had a particular uh, wish to take out their frustrations and disappointments on life on um, school children. <laughs> and that there had been a his long historical conspiracy through <laughs> teachers and poets. And it was years, and I say years, until I was into my twenties uh, on, on the road that I could actually bear to uh, pick up poetry because it reminded me of school and I was very, very um, blessed in life and in so far as I uh, finished my schooling at the age of 15 and I never went back and I genuinely feel that my real education was found outside of the system and uh, not inside of it. And in poetry, which I do feel sometimes, if we're going to speak of language, getting closer to the nature of things, if language gets approximately close to it, then perhaps poetry of the various forms of language can sometimes touch and those uh, responses uh, within us uh, which tell of something which is mystical, which is in beyond what is immediate and tangible. And to quite some degree, Stephen has endeavoured to bring some poetry together to help show us, not only help uplift our spirit, but help point out something which is not of language. And I think this piece of uh, Shakespeare is... Uh, something of an indication of that. And just re recently I have been uh, re reading the, uh, the sonnets of Shakespeare. And it's interesting how when one takes, for example, the sonnets and the, the variety of expressions of love, it's a, it's a whole sequence of poems, really, which is around uh, love and, and is concerned to a particular man of that period. And when one goes through poetry, one finds, not perhaps in the totality, but a gem here, a gem there, which just touches something which is rather inexplicable, and that's the, one of the potent factors of poetry. So this, this is uh, one that um, Stephen is taking uh, from, and the last lines of it, of course, are uh, probably uh, as well known uh, here as the uh, that they are uh, in England. It begins, the first uh, line, uh, it's Prospero's talking to another, another man, but I think it's a line which um, medita meditators should remember when they're sitting through the, the agonies of daily life um, on a retreat. It begins, Be cheerful, sir. <laughs> Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And, like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And, like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. So, in this I would like to give some uh, commentary.
to take two or three lines at a time and explore that uh, a little with you, and in a way, hopefully, which is uh, relevant to our experiences here. But the first is, is, be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. I think sometimes when we find ourselves reflecting back over the, the sequences of our life and, and the whole range and diversity of experiences, and we sometimes find ourselves just in the moments of the sitting and the walking, and the moment of our life from the past were suddenly kind of take rebirth in the present moment. Something that you and I haven't thought about for years, recently, many, many years ago, and we're just flash upon that moment and the event of that. And sometimes that moment which we flash upon is something which we reveled in at the time, something which, which really gave us pleasure and satisfaction. And we experience the sensation as though it was just in the moment, just repeating itself. And there's a certain kind of delight and pleasure which arises in that spontaneous recollection of an event, of a, of a happening which takes place. And one of the poets has said of this, it's like when we look at our life and the whole context of it, he said, it's like, I think it's Chesterton, another poet of this century, he said, those are tremendous trifles. Lovely expression, they're tremendous trifles. And the extraordinary thing is with these tremendous trifles at life, it's that they happen without being sought for. It's another kind of event which takes place. So, th so sometimes we look at the movement of desire, Henrietta was speaking last night about this to us, we look at the movement of desire, the movement of the wanting mind, when we succeed in what we want, we gain a pleasure from it. We work for something, we strive, we striven for something, we sort out, we, we secure that which was pursued, and, and pleasure arises, and it's a certain kind of sensation. But when speaking of joy in life, in the sense that I am speaking about it, that is something of a different order. It's an insofar as the joy emerges unsought for. It's as though, and in fact we've done nothing to deserve it. We've done nothing to work for it. We've, done, we've not harnessed our, our mind or our way of life or our programming, our knowledge, our roles or whatever. It's as though all of that upon which self is known has no relevance. For the moment when we're touched by something and there's a joy. Our revels now are ended. This thought arises on retreats, doesn't it? <laughs> Not allowed to, to have a little indulgence in those tremendous trifles of bygone times and bygone years. And we, we see sometimes that there's a, a hearkening for this. And sometimes we feel in the, in the austerity of the days, and there's genuine austerity 
here, the genuine meditative disciplines here, how much we're missing, how much we would love to touch upon those kinds of moments which have come spontaneously and we've, we've reveled in the sweetness of it. And we see, our revels now are ended. These are our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And so there, there's these experiences which take place and, they, and there's a, a formation, there's a happening which brings them together. And we haven't been, and the beauty of this is, the, the, the miracle, the wonder is, that you and I haven't been able to organize it. We can't organize the joy. We can't organize the moment of being beautifully and profoundly touched. And yet if we were to go through our life and reflect back on our life, and the most precious moments of our life, the most wonderful moments of our life, they're the moments which weren't organized. They're the moments which come of themselves in some unanticipated way. We say to ourselves, we look at our life, at the structure, am I working against joy? Am I actually working against it? Am I living my life as though that had no relevance for me? Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And so both in the event that takes place and in the recollection of these events, arise and melt. Melt. Where do they go? And we live our life, as it were, in a melting existence. Then he continues, And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself. Somebody recently reminded me of a, of a, of a story which I uh, had um, told some time, some uh, years ago, and the story uh, touched the person. And I think it's one of those which can register with us and melt into air for us. And this is a story. I, once I had on a retreat a younger doctor. He was in his late twenties and working in New York. And he was working in a hospital there. And being that he was in his first year as an intern, part of his responsibility was to visit the various wings and 
parts of the hospital. And through his walk through the corridors of the hospital, he came to one uh, end of the hospital, and he walked into a room in the hospital there, into a, and there, in there was a woman, and she was in an iron lung. And he went up to her and spoke to her, and the situation was that she was unable to be out of that iron lung for more than three minutes because of the very high risk and danger that the lungs would collapse. And therefore her life was tied, bound to this uh, iron lung. And then he looked at the chart at the end of the bed and on the chart it contained her various the information necessary to the, the visiting doctor of the day. Her name, her ad address, her um, date of birth, and her temperature, the chart, etc. And also on that list of information was the date of admission. And the date of admission was in 1947. And then he turned to her and he said he just, he just, he looked at this and he was shocked by this information. And he just blurted out to her, how do you stand it? How can you spend your life in this situation, day in and day out? And at this point it had been um, well over 30 years. And then sh she said that sometimes th when the nurse comes to check her on a nice day, the nurse opens the window and for a short period of time the breeze may come and blow through the window. And she says, the breeze blows across her cheek. And she said, when that happens, she said, that's enough. That experience, the breeze blowing across my cheek, makes all this worthwhile. When I heard this story, I asked the, the, the doctor, how was it with her in the period of time of your year? And he said whenever he went to see her, which was regularly, he said she was consistently cheerful, consistently good-spirited, consistently content. And, he said, and one of his great joys was to open the window. So sometimes when we look and we hear this extraordinary capacity of the human spirit, in the face of situations which for you and I can appear when we hear this so utterly intolerable, how could a person bear this? And yet this capacity 
to transform something. And the person can speak that in that way, not just in a moment of good spirit, but out of a constant cheerfulness. And I think sometimes with ourselves, we, and I think perhaps Shakespeare here is talking about this, but sometimes we get so involved in our life in having big experiences, having big events going on in our life, that the real sweetnesses of life, the real depths of life, actually isn't in that gross world. It's somewhere else. Something much more refined and subtle. And something so refined and subtle, like that breeze and that a remarkable woman's cheek, which doesn't demand anything of the world. And Shakespeare says, and like, wonderful, the baseless fabric of this vision, like the baseless fabric of this vision, which could be looked at from many ways. Perhaps baseless fabric is perhaps something to do with ourselves. And one of the things which I observe and notice in uh, working with people is in the variety of different ways we put out a message to ourselves and to each other that somehow we're not good enough. Not good enough to be touched with joy, not good enough to be in a close relationship, not good enough to succeed in our various uh, endeavors and interests. And it's as though we are constantly endeavoring to marshal together inside of ourselves a kind of solid base of self-worth. We're kind of trying to make ourselves, through what we do, to get some kind of residue of image to ourselves that we are okay. And the way we imagine and believe this will occur for us is that we will do particular things in life and, w and the success in what we do will be the instrument for us to feel okay. And that once that occurs, then from that base, we'll then be ready to receive joy. To be good enough to be touched. Good enough for the spontaneous occurrences. 
We can spend our life trying to get the residue of results for this self-affirmation. And he says, like the baseless fabric of this vision, that in other words, we don't need to build up and to establish with us a base. We don't need to make a fabric of being okay. We don't need to be so self-absorbed and trying to get that right before we are touched and are cheerful. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself. Yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. One of the things about the, the Buddha's teachings, in, and in some respect, it is uh, a very unusual teachings from the religious standpoint. Because the Buddha seems to revel, to use the word here of the bard, seems to revel in speaking about things which don't seem to be religious and ignoring those things which appear to be religious. It's, a, it's a uncharacteristic of religion. So generally speaking, when we think of religion, we, according to a Judeo-Christian uh, upbringing, which it is for a, a number of us here, it will focus upon uh, God. It will focus perhaps upon uh, texts such as the Bible and mediators between humankind and God, prophets, uh, the son of God. And this is a, a general expression of religion and not only found in the religions born out of the Middle East, but religions, of course, born um, in other parts of the world as well. And sometimes you and I, we have looked at that and perhaps for some have found some difficulty in relating to that, have discarded the language of orthodox tradition and some here also will feel and do feel very comfortable with the language and particularly in the language of uh, G-O-D the language of God the responses to that language as I say may vary quite considerably and sometimes one also sees with certain uh, amusement to uh, the uh, uh, odd insights which arise in that area and one which comes to mind is a piece of graffiti which I saw in a, on the wall of, in a toilet of a London restaurant some years ago which said um, God um, hasn't forgotten the world but right now he's working on less ambitious projects <laughs> and sometimes in a kind of nutshell these things actually say something and in a way they tell us in many ways perhaps they tell us how easily in life we can want to pin and invest 
all hope outside of ourselves. And to some degree, human beings have pivot back and forth, either pinning all hope outside of ourselves, G-O-D, sacred book, or a particular uh, individual whom we elevate to the nth uh, degree, or we swing the other way and we pin all hope inside of ourselves. and we swing back and forth between these two kind of extremes. I wonder if there is a vision which is a baseless fabric. I wonder if there is a vision, a realization, which is a baseless fabric. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve. So one of the themes of the Buddha is seeing the arising and falling of events to actually be have enough presence of mind, enough awarenesses in life that one doesn't understand anything about life, to let it be clear as possible that what arises passes. And it said, he said, and implied on numerous occasions, be clear about this, acknowledge this, for one's own welfare and good. See this clearly. What arises, it passes. What comes to be, goes. What appears, disappears. If nothing else in life, at least know this, understand this well. And that there's nothing, neither good nor bad, right nor wrong about this, but our forgetfulness of this, our neglect of this, easily lends itself to suffering. Think of the times in your life when there has been dissatisfactions, pain, confusion, unrest or whatever, and somewhere in the perception there and the experiences of that, there hasn't been enough understanding in that to ac acknowledge that what one inherits dissolves. What is inherited dissolves. When I was on the road, some, some, uh, still on the road in a, I suppose, in a sort of way. But when I was on the road in my uh, early twenties, I had travelled, as a, perhaps a number of you did here, hitchhiked across. Um, Europe and through the countries en route to India and I'm passing al along the road, it's a world of change and it's a world where one sees cloud-capped towers, gorgeous palaces and solemn temples. I must add that not all temples are so uh, solemn, and, but anyway, I won't go into a tangent there. So in 
So in Pathfinder, one passes through all of this and all the wonders and uh, extraordinariness of the, the human spirit wishing to put, in a way, into concrete terms something about the feeling about life. And sometimes when one goes in temples and in cathedrals, particularly these old Gothic cathedrals of, uh, of Europe and in other parts of the world, and you walk into the place, and one might be you know, a practicing atheist, one might have no belief in God, no belief in religion, no, no belief in anything at, at, at all. One has dismissed all of that. One might be incredibly secular and consumer-orientated. And one walks in, and one is quiet. That centuries of quietitude and centuries of silence seem to fill the air. And one walks rather respectfully. One is rather attentive to things. One, one is, even if one walks in there with a friend, one just doesn't seem to have any wish just to start having a chat there and in conversation and, and laughing or running or um, hanging out or having a smoke or whatever. That something in the very silence of things, in the very stillness of things, of some of these old temples and monasteries and cathedrals touch one. Touch one in such a way the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, all which it inherits shall dissolve. And it seems to have nothing to do with the building, the structure of something, though that's indicative of something, but something about silence. something about silence. When I was on the, the road, I arrived in the Saranath. This is the place where the Buddha gave his first talk. He, it appears from the text and from what he um, uh, talked about, that some uh, realization, liberating realizations took place. And I think there's an important point here which I sometimes remind people about. And, to use our uh, language here, a, a profound opening, so we say, took place, or, uh, a realization uh, took place. And in the process of that, I think this is a very important thing here, that and he's made it very, very clear here, and sometimes forgotten, that there can be quite dramatic religious or spiritual experiences which take place, both here and other retreats, totally outside of the retreats, and other situations. Experiences which one puts into the general uh, category or description as being religious or spiritual or transforming whatever. The quality of the sensation, the intensity of the sensation is not the thing. It's not the thing. It's not that will, that will fade and melt into thin air, as Shakespeare says. What is significant is the insights which emerge out of the experience. 
They may have a whole variety of heart-opening experiences, mind-opening experiences, whole range of different um, unfamiliar sensations taking place, or one may not, but n the important significance is what's the realization that occurs? What's the insight which occurs? Sometimes people will come on retreats during the course of the retreat, uh, from a previous retreat, from another time and place, unrelated, and the person will say, uh, Christopher, this happened to me, I experienced this, I had these incredible realizations, I got touched in this way, touched in, in that way, you know, and is this what awakening is, is this what enlightenment is, is this what liberation is, or whatever. And my response, as you can imagine, in uh, moving in these kind of circles which I uh, move in, and as many of you do as well, one has the immense privilege and uh, honor to listen to a incredible, remarkable range of human experiences. It's a very special privilege and situation to actually be in. And sometimes people say, Christopher, this happened to me, this happened to me. And some discussion and exploration of that will take place. But I also would, would always make, because of this melting into thin air, two particular points about it. One is, when something like that has happened relatively recently, then I say to a person, if there has been realization, taking place, and the teachings, remember, are about realization. They can come quietly or can come with a lot of feeling, a lot of sensation. Please give it one year and a day. If in the course of the cycle of things, shall we say, what a person can say to themselves with all honesty and, and clarity, something has changed and there hasn't been any, as it were, falling back into the old in the way that things had been before. There has been a change that will have in one's life a staying power to it. As is the nature of realization, it, it, there's a staying power to it. One has realized something. And, therefore I say, must give it time. One cannot draw hard and fast conclusions in a retreat or in the days immediately following a retreat. The second point, which I think is equally important, and I think the Buddha uh, has, has commented on this I'm, uh, as well. And it is sometimes there are experiences which take place, a range of experiences, and then the person moves, moves on, moves elsewhere, or whatever. And one thinks, because I've had whatever these experiences are, because this has occurred to me, that somehow all of one's life is going to be neatly and uh, easily taken care of. And I think with experiences and the range and the insights which come, uh, as the Buddha has uh, pointed out with uh, great, wi great wisdom and understanding, is that there are the three jewels of existence. Awakening itself, the first, Second, the teachings, the Dharma, which is concerned only with awakening and everything else is uh, placed second fiddle to it. And 
Third is the Sangha, the gathering of like-minded people. So where there is experiences and realizations and insights, that the jewel, that third jewel of gathering the contact with like-minded people, in the subsequent period, I feel, acts as a tremendous resource. Not that one necessarily talks about the experience or explains it, because others may or may not understand, but in the silence and in the caring nature of humanity, that experience has the opportunity and the time to season and mature inside of oneself. And sometimes people have come and have said to me, just that I have this experience, whatever, whenever, whatever. And then I just, I thought everything was so much clear, and things in my life were so clear, and then have continued on, and then found that they've been overwhelmed or confused or depressed or felt lost or insecure, and then wondered, well, what was the validity of that experience? And it may have been valid, but one lives in relationship to, one doesn't live as self, never could and never did. So though experiences may melt and vanish, as is said, nevertheless, insights matter. And like this, oh, thank you. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. So, when events take place for us, and the event, the pageant, has faded away, let's understand, let's not hold on to it. Let's not make something special of it. Even with the Buddha and his realizations that took place, it certainly wasn't him who made something special of it. It was history. It was the tradition which made something special of it. And in his 45 years of teaching about realization and about the transcendent significance of it, and in 20 volumes of what is said to be recorded texts of what he said, the references to that particular night amount to two or three times. And even then it is said it was only in the latter period of his life, in a conversation with Sariputra, that he gave more detail about what occurred to him on the night of his realization under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. So see, even those situations as well as in our own life, making fuss doesn't contribute to awakening and, underst and understanding and the emergence of understanding out of the forms of experience. Leave, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, Leave not a rack behind, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. And surely the, the way of realization, the, the stuff of awakening is such that, oh, event on the, on the stage is not of the significance 
in comparison, in realization of something which is vast, which is immense. And there's this tremendous capacity of human beings to see the form of our life, the, st the structure, the strategies of our life, with a, with a space which goes around it, which says, as dreams are made on, our life is rounded with a little sleep. And that we have the capacity for a vision which is beyond life, our personal life, beyond our birth and death. Because all that is the stuff of dreams. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are our actors, as I foretold you. We're all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. So let's have a minute or two together, shall we please?